whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with Inside Pharma with our pharmaceutical manufacturing and distribution consultant, Headley Reese, and one of the experts he is bringing to us from the UK, Cheryl Granger, who has been a training consultant to the pharmaceutical industry in order to guide training on proper manufacturing standards as well. And this should be a very explosive show for all of you because Shell Granger has dug into some of the expose of the production and distribution deficiencies in the SARS-CoV-2 injections from all three manufacturers. Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. This show brings you information that can definitely help save your life and your health. And so I urge you to listen to all of the report today on Inside Pharma, exposing the black box that is pharma and all of the deception and cover-ups they don't want you to know as they push their products for profit rather than sound services for patients to protect our lives. So Headley, um, tell us about the work you're doing right now and your work with Cheryl Granger. And then let's introduce your guest from your perspective, working with her closely in the UK and We'll hear what she has found in these shocking deficiencies. Welcome to both of you for the Whistleblower Report. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Lee. It's a real pleasure to be on here again and a pleasure to have Sarah Granger on the show. We've got to know each other quite well now. Both uh, worked in the industry for many years, believed it was ethical, believed it was doing the right thing, and suddenly discovered with the outset of COVID that it was doing no such thing and some really dreadful things have been going on. And I know Cheryl came to this, first of all, having seen the release of the Pfizer documents that happened in the US and really thought, well, I want to dig into the AstraZeneca situation to see what's happening there, particularly since the AstraZeneca injections uh, are based in the UK. So first of all, I want to ask Cheryl, if she could, first of all, just say something about the work she was doing in the pharmaceutical industry and then say what she started to find out about the AstraZeneca injections. 
Um, thanks um, both. Um, I basically um, was a training consultant. Um, I still am. Um, so I actually um, worked um, in sales to start off with myself and then went into uh, training, being training development manager, and then um, set up my own consultancy as a trainer and did lots of different training courses um, and then concentrated, because the kids came along, on um, training medical reps through an association of British pharmaceutical industry exam they had to pass within two years of becoming a representative in the UK. And that brought me into contact with lots of different subjects like um, anatomy and physiology, diseases, um, immunology, um, microorganisms, and then uh, development of a, man, of a, a medicine, um, pharmacology, statistics, um, uh, lots and lots of different subjects that um, I thought made a lot of sense to me. And I thought that's what the industry was doing. And I know Headley has gone on about the um, industry now outsourcing everything. Well, when I went through my training more years ago than I care to imagine, um, I worked for a company that took me to their own manufacturing uh, unit. They were in Guildford. The unit was up in Newcastle um, so that we could see a production line, so we could see how things were made, so we could see the things that we were selling actually um, be made. Um, and, for example, Panadol Soluble was one of their products, and they um, used to make soluble products for other companies because they had the, the process to handle soluble products. So it all made sense to me at that time. Um, and I've been training people on all these things. Um, uh, the code of practice is part of the exam. And a lot of people think the industry is following what the code is saying. And it's not. It's breaking it. I mean, the word that we're not allowed to say in the industry is safe. We're not allowed to say a product is safe um, without having some um, uh, qualification on that. Um, and that was the first thing that started ringing bells with me way back um, that, um, you know, these products, um, everybody was saying they're safe and effective. And in terms of the effectiveness, they were also saying that um, they were highly effective, you know, 95, 96 percent effective. And the code of practice states that you can't use the relative risk ratio on its own. The only um, ratio you can use on its own is the absolute risk ratio. Um, and obviously, when you take something like Pfizer actually stating they're 95 percent effective, you're really saying that it's 0.84 percent absolute risk ratio. Um, so, again, so Sarah, could, I, could you just explain that in a bit more detail? Because I think people would be really interested in, 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 in that, um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, what? Um, what what the uh, relative risk ratio does is that it actually makes medicines appear more effective than they actually are. So if you have two groups, a thousand participants in each group, one group gets the um, medicine and the other group gets a placebo and one person dies in the treated group and two people die in the placebo group, you could say that the uh, treatment is 100 percent more effective than the uh, placebo. Um, but what you've done is you've saved one life out of 2,000, or at least one life out of 1,000. So at the end of the day, the percentage that you're talking about is a lot, lot lower when you look at the actual total group, the absolute um, figure is a lot less and is more um, uh, real. It's a real figure. 
compared with the uh, relative risk ratio, which is an inflated figure. And so those two things started gracing with me. And if you have a problem with the code of practice, if you think a company's breaking it, um, there's lots of marketing issues, things that you're not allowed to say in the UK. People report companies and they get hauled over the coals. I reported on safe and this absolute uh, uh, risk and relative risk ratio. And I, we were just fobbed off. It didn't matter, apparently. It didn't matter. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've seen, Cheryl, is this total callous disregard for all quality standards and the effects on human life. In fact, it's almost as if they set out to do nothing to oversee quality and safety with these shots, knowing they would do damage. Hedley, your thoughts? Yeah. Well, um, uh I was just going to say, Sarah, I mean, we've uh, corresponded on email about the deficiencies, um, you know, the consistency of the RNA in the vials and the various ways in that um, the dosages were varying by tremendous uh, uh, amounts. And I, I think it's it's good to get um, Cheryl's investigations that have been carrying on because I you know, Cheryl's come from an end where the code of practice is important, but obviously it's not bread and butter. So I, I sort of understand these things. It's good to get Cheryl's perspective because she has been to a production plant and she knows that physical things are going on. And this is what people, you know, haven't been picking up that making drugs is a physical process in in plants where you have machinery you have lots of things that could be that could go wrong. You have to have standard operating procedures. Operators need to know exactly what they should be doing. And everything in what Cheryl has picked up is showing that the the amount of work and procedurization that should have been in place wasn't in place. Uh, so and things like I know you've looked at the active substances for all these, Cheryl, and uh various other production items what 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 strikes you most as the most sort of outlandish thing that's that's got on um well from a recent um investigation it's the fact that there's different processes to produce different products of the same thing and there's certain um, processes that are used um, to produce um, product for clinical trials and then there are other products that are produced for um, uh, commercial use that are rolled out to the rest of us and what's happened is they haven't tested those um, commercial products um, they've done all the testing on the um, clinical trial products um, and you know you've always said Hedley it's like making a cake isn't it at the end of the day you make a recipe for a, a cake for your family you try and make it for the whole village and you find out that it changes because you've actually changed the um, products that go into it by quantity and a lot of changes can happen as they interact with each other um, and we first found this out with uh, Pfizer with the process one and the process two um, and um, it's been uh, discussed quite uh, in, in depth 
uh, in terms of the difference with the processes that we used. And we know that they've now got, because of the process two being produced from E. coli, we've actually got a contamination with DNA that should have been removed and it hasn't been. And obviously all the implications of that, which people are now discussing. Um, and um, the what I did, I went back to the uh, EMA. So the EMA did their open assessment reports, which were quite detailed. And um, they basically had said about process one and process two for Pfizer. So I went and looked at um, Moderna and AstraZeneca as well. I mean, my interest in AstraZeneca is because it's kind of a UK product, but also it was used widely in the UK to start off with. And 58% of the adverse reactions and deaths um, were from AstraZeneca. If you look at the table of yellow card reports of um, the, the three products. So um, that's why I've, I've actually written a Freedom of Information, um, really um, copying what Aaron Siri did uh, in terms of trying to get hold of the uh, data that was put forward for license uh, to the MHRA on AstraZeneca. And I'm still fighting them on that. I'm still I'm not letting go. I'm still trying to get that data. But um, the. Um, EMA, when you look at their open assessment report um, for Moderna, Moderna actually um, started off with um, small scale um, scale A product. Then they went to an initial scale B product. Um, then they went to final scale B. So there were three different products. Um, scale A were the ones that were used in the clinical trial data. Um, and it says that the main change was the transition from the small scale process to the scale A process, including the addition of two process steps for the scale A process. Um, and what they're saying is after a process change, the integrity of the vaccine components, the final vaccine and the activity must be retested and reevaluated, which is what Headley's always said. And it's not being done. Um, and at the time, uh, could I get you to uh, slow down just a second, Cheryl? Oh, sorry. Um, Let's try and, and break this apart a little bit to have our listeners better understand it, because you know what all of this means in terms of the clinical and medical safety and impact, but our listeners don't necessarily know that. So, Hedley, could you Hedley, and Cheryl you explain Cheryl. it a little bit? Well, I, I can start off by saying something. The principle in the industry is that you submit all the details of the process to the regulator when you apply to market the, 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 the product. And it's not just the process, but all the suppliers, the contractors, the specifications, the test systems. And this is done through the chemistry manufacturing and controls module. And when you get an, an approval to market the product, the regulator will have inspected all the facilities involved. They would have checked out all the raw materials and they would have said, you can market that product, but only if you use that supply chain with those processes. If you change anything after the approval, you have to submit a post-approval application to change the process. So when they moved, if, if they submitted the clinical trial data, which they did, to get the approval to market this drug. When they changed the process, they should have waited until they'd gone back to the regulator, be it FDA, European Medicines Agency, 
and said, this is the process change. Will you confirm that we can now market this product with this new um, process? But they will have had to produce the safety data to prove that new process was still safe. So each step, every time they make a change, it is supposed to be resubmitted, evaluated properly by outside people, look at, evaluate the safety data, and then approved again, if I understood you correctly. Yeah, it, it's the same. If you were a car manufacturer and you changed you know, a component in the car, the brakes, the steering, the undercarriage, uh, the, the, the sort of um, uh, whatever, then you uh, it, it, because it's not going to patients' bodies, the companies have to go through a rigorous procedure to make sure that the change isn't going to affect the performance of the car or anything. But for drugs, because the, the potential impact is could be deadly, it has to go through to this outside body to say to the regulator to say, look, we are ha- still happy for you to go on marking this, and and I'm sure Cheryl will add to that. So I'll I'll stop and uh, get Cheryl's thoughts on that. Well, I thank you because I just wanted our listeners to understand what a major violation this is, and it is just common sense. If they approve one thing, and they do a bait and switch, which is the way consumers would look at this and it's correct they do a bait and switch they said okay this is what we got approved but by the way we just changed everything we're going to make it this way and they've switched to something new that isn't approved then i the public clearly needs to know that and they should be sanctioned and shut down but okay sorry to interrupt cheryl but i i knew that most people weren't going to follow all of the what your statements meant in terms of their safety because they don't fully understand that every change requires a new approval. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry I didn't explain it clearly. It's a validation set of data that you need. So you're saying that this process is um, the same as the product that comes out of it is the same product that we've actually had in clinical trial. And at the time that Moderna sent all their information in to the regulator, and in this case, it's the European Medicines Agency, which is the European regulator, um, they didn't have any available information on this process B, which was the product that was going to be shipped out to the public. Um, injected which, into people's bodies let's make that yeah. clear yeah yeah um, so we don't have any way to know what the safety was of that particular product that was with the new process that was actually the one injected into millions of people no no um, we do know from the uh, report, this open assessment report from the EMA, there were lots of impurities in it and they're listed. Um, and again, that's very worrying. And each of those, um, the, the, the what EMA, were some of those impurities, Cheryl? I think that would be the, important for people to know. Well, I can, there's a list abbreviated mRNA products. Um, so that's shorter sections of mRNA, impurities of the mRNA, 
Um, they also list um, multiple protein uh, bands. Those are the bands that are used to produce the mRNA. Um, they also talk about um, dsRNA, which is a different uh, thing that has uh, immunostimulatory effect, apparently, in the body. Um, they're talking about um, a lipid impurity, SM102. Um, they're also talking about impurities in the um, PEG um, lipid that was also uh, included in the lipid. So the polyethylene glycol, which is toxic itself, yeah. also yeah. had further impurities in it. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing with the mRNA that they, they brought out, um, they looked at doses of 40 milligrams and 79 milligrams for some unknown reason. Um, and they found that they were effective. And what the um, what you have to ask is why were they injecting 100 uh, micrograms of RNA? So, you know, 100 micrograms of RNA will be twice the, the 40 micrograms um, that had been tried and found to be effective. Um you know, they'd make more money if they have more content in it. Perhaps that's why. But they um, also but didn't recheck the safety. No, no. Unbelievable. Yeah. The more RNA you put in, because it's wrapped up in this fat bubble, this lipid nanoparticle bubble, then the more um, uh, mRNA you've got there, the more lipid nanoparticles, which are also toxic, they, you know, it takes more lipid nanoparticles. You put in more of that toxic substance. You know, I, that is just shocking to me as a physician. Dosing of medicines is so critical. And to just arbitrarily do one and a half times the dose that they used in the clinical trial. I mean, they went from 40 micrograms to 100 micrograms. That's one and a half times. And, and don't forget, Dr. Lee, the um, Pfizer um, injections were actually 30 micrograms and they'd actually looked at 10, 20 and 30 micrograms and they'd found that there was no difference in effect. You've obviously got more reactions, adverse reactions with the 30 micrograms, but they decided to go for the 30. And that means that uh, Moderna is 3.3 times um, the dose of Pfizer when you look at the um, mRNA um, and when you get to the children's dose of Moderna it's 25 micrograms and the um, Pfizer adult dose is 30 micrograms so the child's dose of Moderna is nearly the same as the Pfizer. No wonder there have been so many damaging yeah horrific yep. consequences for children that you know this truly is just absolutely staggering in the implications for the damage to people and and what what is so chilling to me is that the only reason to justify doing that was to increase their profits so once again they were clearly putting profit over patients safety and lives it, it's, it is just a devastating blow to trust in the pharmaceutical industry and to the patients who've had their lives destroyed and damaged with disabilities that are permanent and death that, of course, is 
no way to come back from that, at least in the physical no. sense. Yeah. And of course, when all this information arrives, and it used to arrive, there was so much data that was sent for license, it used to arrive in a truck. But now, obviously, it's, it's sent um, uh, through the through the Internet. Um, and basically, um, that information usually takes a long time to sift through and you keep going back as the regulator and asking questions and querying things and actually the EMA did it did ask a lot of questions but they still released it and those questions the answers to those questions uh, were supposed to be released within six months and we don't seem to have seen those answers so you know <laughs> I don't think they so, exist I, I... Well, they certainly haven't seen any answers to them from a, a medical standpoint. And Headley, I don't think you've, and you and Cheryl have seen them from the manufacturing standpoint. No, no, they focused entirely on the clinical aspects of this. Now, setting up and running a clinical trial is relatively short, so they could, they could do that in a short time frame. But the chemistry manufacturing and control, the supply chain element, you have to engage with your suppliers. You have to brief them on the on the development protocols. It takes years before you get the supply chain built up. That's why it takes 10, 11 years to develop a drug, because you've got to build the supply chain. In the same way as for a, a Boeing Dreamliner, you'd have to build the supply chain, and that would take about 12 years. So I keep harping back to this, but people have to remember that these are physical products that have to be manufactured. They've got components. Some of these, or a lot of these components are bought in China. They then move to another <laughs> part of the world, uh, going on airlines with temperature sensitivity. Then they go to another part of the world. And there's so many opportunities for things to go wrong. And the key to this is none of these manufacturers actually make these products themselves. They're outsourced to third parties, and those third parties get paid no matter what happens, if you know, and all they would ever do is give you your money back for, the, for what you paid for them to make the drug for you, and and that is crucial. That that's why we've got this lack of control and lack of control consistency, lack. because too many fingers in the pie, if you like. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's quite incredible because, um, for example, a generic medicine. Um, has to be the same as the drug that it's based on and you have to match British Pharmacopoeia and you have to make sure that um, it's it's basically the same drug so it's going to have the same effects in the body. Um, if I can move on to AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca. I tell you uh, what Cheryl let's take a break we're at 26 minutes so <laughs> let's take a break and we will come back and pick up the um, story about AstraZeneca right after the break. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report, and today's segment is Inside Pharma, exposing the lies and deception inside the black box that is big pharma and things you don't know that can affect your life and your health. Check out our website, truthforhealth.org, and download our vaccine injury treatment guide if you got the shot. Download our COVID treatment guide and our fact sheets on medical and legal help, including the facts about the next pandemic they're hyping called hemorrhagic fevers or Marburg Nipah 
or Ebola, whatever virus of the day the powers have decided to terrorize us with, you can learn the facts and what are some of the treatment options that are available so you don't have to live in fear. And don't forget, all of our whistleblower reports are archived at truthforhealth.org and www.whistleblowerreports.org. Check out all the information that we've been bringing to you from whistleblowers around the world across many fields. We'll be right back after the break. Hello, everyone. This is Lieutenant Mark Bashaw, U.S. Army and legal grant recipient of the Truth for Health Foundation. I want to give a huge shout out to the Truth for Health Foundation for helping me and my family over the past year with our legal battles. Recently, I was court-martialed for not participating with these experimental COVID-19 emergency use authorized products. If it wasn't for Truth for Health Foundation and all the support, I would definitely be in a worse spot. But because of all the support, I'm able to continue uniform service, fighting for what's right, to protect the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless America. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report, Inside Pharma, with our UK consultants in pharmaceutical manufacturing, distribution, quality control, and safety standards, Hedley Reese, and with us our guest today, Cheryl Granger. So Cheryl, right before the break, you were getting ready to tell us about what you have uncovered in the deficiencies and impurities and other problems with the AstraZeneca shots which is, of course, based in the UK. AstraZeneca is based in the UK. And all of this is supposed to have been approved by the MHRA, which is the UK regulatory body, the EMA, which is the European regulatory body, and the FDA, the US regulatory body. And yet our regulatory agencies have failed us in not holding the pharmaceutical manufacturers for the COVID injections to maintain normal manufacturing standards, safety review standards, uh, review and evaluation of any process, manufacturing process changes, all the way around. It is a devastating and catastrophic failure to protect the public safety. So what, what, is the, what are your findings with AstraZeneca? Um, very similar, really. Um, can I just say that um, one of the things to remember is in the UK, um, the MHRA is funded 86%, so higher than yourselves, 86% by the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, June Rain, Dame June Rain, who's their chief executive, has said on many occasions that she's now the enabler. So they don't wow. consider themselves to be a regulator anymore. So they enable Well, that's the true of the FDA as well, Cheryl. The large yeah. proportion of the FDA's budget comes from big pharma. Yeah, I think it's 60-odd percent compared with um, our um, MHRA. But that's an aside. So in terms of AstraZeneca, 
there were four different processes that were used when they developed the vaccine for AstraZeneca. Um, so they had process one, two, and three, and they were used in the clinical trials. And they're saying um, in the this open assessment report by the European Medicine Agency that they were comparable. So the products one, two, and three um, were actually uh, comparable. Um, so it says that there was also a comparison that was done between the three processes and the process four, which is the one that was injected into people, the commercial um, process four. Um, and it said that the acceptance ranges um, were considered to be too large. So basically, they weren't happy with the comparisons that were made between process four and the other three. So they weren't happy with the data package and they wanted it to be um, uh, redone, to com be completed. Um, it's saying it's not acceptable that such essential data should only be required after the approval. So they weren't happy with how the commercial product that was injected into people, how that compared with the products that were used in clinical trial, and yet they still put emergency um, use licenses on, on the product, um, even though they were waiting for essential data for it. So they released it to be used, even though they were not happy, the MHRA regulators no, this, were not happy yeah. with it. Yeah, this was the EMA. Yeah, they weren't happy with it. Um, so uh, the other thing that they pointed out um, is that the final product, so this is process four products, um, the stuff that was put into people, has a four to six fold uh, lower shelf life specification for the concentration of infectious virus particles than the test product used during clinical trials. So it basically... Um, didn't have the shelf life specification um, of the other three things that were um, used um, in clinical trial. And shelf life, at least quite, quite a, an important thing to know about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's critical. The, um, the strict regulations enforced by the International Council for uh, Harmonization of Technical Requirements for Pharmaceutical Products, which have been ignored Totally, but you have to put your products down on stability testing, uh, real time, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, sort of like a projection, and this takes months. The first point is normally after six months. So to determine the shelf life of a product, you have to wait at least six months uh, to get physical data. So so actually, I think they were just making you know they were just saying we'll call the shelf life. X, and we won't do any studies, we just call it X and just say we've studied it. You know, th th this is the hallmark of all these things that we're talking about. They've said the work has been done when it just hasn't been done. And how do you prove it hasn't been done? Well, you know, when we have the situation we've got, uh, and just to add to what Cheryl said, the European Medicines Agency were quite... Um, open in their concerns about at least three elements of, of, of these proposals, and they were just ignored. The people at the European Medicines Agency would have known were just ignored, and the approval came from the MHRA in the UK. The first approval came from the NHRA, and it looks very much like a political decision to approve 
the the, the marketing of those vaccines, even though the regulators was uh, still had concerns. And there's a huge political element in this whole thing, which, as Dr. Lee, as you know, both across the pond in the US and in Europe and UK. And no, course, that's exactly right. They were determined to get a shot in every arm around the world, regardless of any quality or safety. And we we know they weren't even testing it for whether or not it prevented transmission. And yet they lied and said, if you get the shot, you won't spread to other words. Get the shot to protect grandma. You won't spread the virus. Get the shot to keep yourself out of the hospital. Get the shot because it's safer than the medicines we use, we have to treat COVID. All three major lies. Yeah. With and the 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 AstraZeneca one, um, it was actually released and used as commercial batches. Um, while the efficacy of it in terms of how whether you got an adequate immune response from it had actually been established with any absurdity at all. So they didn't know how effective it was. They were going on what they found in clinical trials. They hadn't actually tested the actual batch that was um, put into arms, as you say. Incredible. What other uh, differences did, you, did they find in process four that actually was injected into people's bodies well there's not really an awful lot on that because it's all based on the uh, first three processes um and that's the problem um i mean obviously from things like the um Pfizer document analysis they have found out a lot of information because it's straight from the Pfizer data they've now got the Moderna data um that's coming through over the next two years to find out exactly what they knew before they released this and really that's the the only way we will find out i should imagine exactly what um they knew what they actually had found if i can just um put a point here as well um sherry you know there were no physical inspections of the facilities i'll talk about the astrazeneca uh, drug because it was made by a company called oxford biomedica based in cowley in oxford not AstraZeneca and Oxford University would have had virtually no involvement whatsoever. And they set up a facility, we joke about this because they actually rented a, a former post office building that was that, that had been vacated to put in pharmaceutical standard machinery and equipment and processes that were approved by the MHRA in record time, I'm talking four months, which is unheard of. And fundamentally, they never even, oh. the MHRA inspectors did never never went there at all. They just said, okay, they did have some virtual inspections with the Microsoft HoloLens 2, which is a, a, a machine learning and virtual reality um, uh, piece of uh, artificial intelligence. But you know, that sort of inspection is useless because the inspectors aren't in control of it. The company are in control of what the inspector sees. So, you know, they're not going to see what they should see. 
But even then, after an inspection, they have to write a long report that explains all the deficiencies they've found, and they have to discuss that with the company. And it almost invariably, the company has to do remediation work before they are approved to manufacture on the product. And the timescales just would not have allowed that to happen in the slightest. So that's a real, that, and even now, they aren't inspecting. You could say at the start, you know, it was an emergency, people were dying, if you believe that. And the inspectors couldn't go to the plant because they may have caught COVID and died. But we know now they could go there tomorrow and do a physical inspection. And I'd just like to know and see the report because the FDA have done these inspections. The FDA have, is on record of uh, at least two uh, inspections one of a, a German company making the Pfizer drug substance called Rentschler, and the other one uh, in, in in Bloomington, a Catlin Pharma Solutions uh, facility. Uh, and both those inspections were swathing. Those companies should have been closed down or, or at least brought into special measures until the issues they found were, were remediated because they were basically saying, there is no control of what's going on in this facilities. And those inspections from FDA, they are public, they're available on the FDA website. And if you read them, it would send a, a shiver up your spine. Henley, so, if you know where to look for those, could you send us a link for those two inspection reports that are on the FDA website? And we will put it with the show notes so that people can easily find it. I, I find the FDA website almost impossible to navigate, and maybe you have a better idea of what you're looking for. Well, in fact, Dr. Lee, th this was um, on a, a, a journal, Fierce Farmer. Uh, so there's an article on both of them explaining what happened. So it's quite easy to understand. And they, they've attached these inspections to it. Like you, it's, it, it's not easy to find where these uh, where this information is, but it is on the um, uh, the FDA website. But I'll make sure that you've got a link to the articles and the inspection reports. That would be a big help for our listeners so that they can actually have the article that explains what the inspections found that was so devastatingly bad and not corrected. That That, I think, is really important that we provide that resource to make it easier for people, lay people, to, to find it. I mean, I have written um, two summaries based on what, um, it's a, a, a Dr. Uh, Vanessa um, Kruger-Schmidt um, in Germany had actually written up on the EMA um, information. And I've kind of pasted that. I could let you have copies of that if you want to see them. That would be very helpful, Cheryl. I think for all the people listening who do care, who want to understand this, when we can provide resources to for them to easily find the experts' opinions and summaries, that's a, that's a huge help to empower people to make the decision to avoid continuing to get these um, toxic shots. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the thing that's bothering me is I saw the chief scientific officer on a TED talk from Moderna talk about how many mRNA um, products are in clinical trials at the moment. 
and that's 175 of them. And, oh, and my heavens. And 54 of them are waiting to go into clinical trials. So that's 200 and odd products of the same type, as if it's been accepted that uh, mRNA um, products are the way to go. Oh, my um, heavens. How many are in clinical trials, did you say? This is Moderna? 175, not just Moderna, but 175 mRNA products are being investigated in clinical trials at the moment. Oh, my heavens. In other words, they're going to convert everything yeah, to this mRNA there. technology that's toxic. Yeah, and she stood there and talked to a full audience who clapped her. <laughs> they thought it was very exciting, and I want everybody to stop taking anything mRNA. Oh, um, my heavens, I do too. And medically, it's devastating. Well, 175, pro I just can't get over that. mRNA products in clinical trials and 54 waiting to go into trials. Yeah. Um, and um, that was on clinicaltrials.gov, apparently. Um, one of the things I've done is um, we're going after the MHRA in terms of exposing them as much as we can. And I did a freedom of information because the lady in charge, um, June Rain, had said about a, a yellow card, which you probably know is our uh, reporting system, but it was a yellow card vaccine monitor. So that is very small, but it's a bit like your VSA. So what she talked about at a meeting was how good the monitor was because they got 2,000 pregnant ladies in the monitor and they were watching them and it gave them a denominator to come up with facts about everything that they were looking at. So I asked for the um, information about this and they wouldn't send it me. They sent me a redacted report that they presented to another advisory group uh, sometime in July 21. And within that report, um, they actually um, had 30,000 people who registered to take part in the monitor. And they got 53% of them showing as uh, reporting at least one um, adverse drug reaction. Um, and of those uh, that received AstraZeneca, there were 59% uh, of them that had one ADR. And that was 38.8% were Pfizer and 59% for Moderna. And the bit I wanted to ask about, because I'm very concerned about pregnant women, um, there were 1,366 pregnant women in their monitor. Um, and of those who received AstraZeneca, 66%, that was 124 out of 203, reported at least one adverse drug reaction. 38% of the Pfizer recipients and 61% of the Moderna recipients re reported one adverse drug reaction. So 61% Moderna, how much for Pfizer? Um, there was, um, Pfizer was, for the pregnant women, it was 66% AstraZeneca, 38% um, Pfizer, and 61% Moderna. Um, no, that is I, just just yeah. really shocking. Um, you know what they say instead of releasing it? They say that they can um, basically object to my freedom of information and not release it because they're going to publish. And they're going to publish probably within the next year. And they're making sure it's peer reviewed before they publish. This is actually like their yellow cards. They've published their yellow card uh, reports, or they have been doing up till recently. They won't publish this. 
Hmm. I, I, I just, the public has no idea of the magnitude of this cover-up and to jeopardize pregnant women and the safety of the developing baby is just a callousness and uh, heinous ethical violation in my mind. Uh, we've never done that in the history of modern medicine is using pregnant women and their unborn babies as guinea pigs and ignoring the adverse events and covering it up. Yes. And I mean, we're supposed to not have soft cheese when we're pregnant. We're not supposed to, you know, um, cut back on, on wine and not have any and all the rest of it. But we can have a medication injected into us that hasn't been trialed properly. Well, and what the public doesn't understand is that the lipid, the fatty bubble that encompasses and and provides the transportation. It's like putting your body in a car to get you somewhere. You put the mRNA in this fatty bubble to get it across the cell membrane. But that also means that it crosses the placental barrier and this genetic material with not only the mRNA, but the now proven contamination with DNA and heaven knows whatever other toxic metals and other contaminants are in it is packaged in this lipid bubble that crosses the placental barrier and affects the developing baby whose immune system isn't developed yet. So they're giving the baby toxic chemicals and giving the baby genetic material that is supposed to trigger an immune response and the baby doesn't have a functioning immune system yet. It's just devastating. And they're selling it to pregnant women on the basis that COVID is very detrimental when you're pregnant and therefore you need to protect yourself against it. But the reality medically for everyone listening is that influenza was always a more serious respiratory illness for pregnant women than anything seen with the COVID, SARS-CoV-2 virus in the first place. In the second place, hydroxychloroquine is already categorized as one of the safest, in the, in the safest pregnancy medicine category and has been used safely in pregnant women around the world in all ethnic groups um, for decades. I'm talking at least 40 years. It's been on the market 65 years. And I had maternal fetal medicine specialists telling me that these are high-risk pregnancy specialists, board-certified, fellowship-trained, research maternal fetal medicine specialists telling me that they treated pregnant women with hydroxychloroquine safely for COVID, no adverse effects, no COVID deaths. And they're terrorizing pregnant women, telling them that COVID is going to kill them. Yeah. But it's not true. I used to sell hydroxychloroquine when I was a medical rep. Um, I used to sell Plaquenil, which was for rheumatoid arthritis. When they started, saying that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous it gave you heart problems and all the rest of it I thought well that's a bit odd because when I sold it we had to go and see ophthalmologists because if you were on it long term and on higher doses than you give for uh, COVID um, you could actually get a retinitis you could get a problem with your eye and um, it didn't 
it didn't we never mentioned anything about hearts so again that was another reason why i thought this was all very odd um yeah. well it was and the scare about the cardiac arrhythmias was designed to to scare people into not taking it the american college of rheumatologists that had been using high dose hydroxychloroquine to treat rheumatoid and lupus for decades um actually never even had a requirement for a baseline EKG before putting someone on hydroxychloroquine. Now, the data that I've seen with regard to changes in the retina is 1% of patients after five years of use at the doses for rheumatoid and lupus, which are higher, as you said, than what we used successfully to treat COVID. They're yeah. almost double the doses we used to treat COVID. Yeah. Um, and that's why I just thought everything right from the start was illogical and kind of unscientific. It just didn't make sense to me at all. Well, it was designed uh, because I was um, exposing a lot of this and speaking nationally um, and working with Senator Ron Johnson beginning in late March 2020. And he wanted to know, he called me out of the blue and wanted to know from my radio interview what was happening that doctors were not allowed to prescribe hydroxychloroquine. So I gave him an earful and he said, well, we've had President Trump got 76 million doses of hydroxychloroquine donated by pharmaceutical companies for the national stockpile to distribute to doctors, clinics, hospitals to use to treat COVID. And it's all sitting there. No one's using it. And I said, well, here's why. And we went through all of that. And I started helping him with the medical data that he needed. But that was clear to me by the end of March 2020, that they were suppressing, lying, deliberately suppressing the use of hydroxychloroquine to push everyone into this experimental vaccine they were already talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't have emergency use if you've got a product that is successful. Exactly right. And that's the same with ivermectin, isn't it? Because ivermectin um, actually won a Nobel Prize for its inventor. Um, You know, well justified. Um, You know, it's a very, very safe product. Yes. And in fact, ivermectin, the cover-up now extends to the fact that there are many um, medical publications about its use in cancer as an anti-cancer drug. And Dr. Mackis in Canada has been reviewing the data on ivermectin's use in cancer and fenbendazole use in cancer, particularly in the reef, the turbo cancers that are happening after the COVID shots that he said as an oncologist, we're seeing that the turbo cancers triggered by the COVID injections are more refractory. In other words, they don't respond to traditional chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So these older repurposed drugs hold out hope for those cancer patients who are suffering from aggressive end-stage, stage four turbo cancers. They're a bit too cheap. That's the problem. Well, that's exactly right. And they're off patent and they're not going to make money for the pharmaceutical company. It's clear from everything 
that Headley's been presenting all along, that you're presenting, and what we're seeing medically is that the goal is profit above all, and patients are dying. So what the calloused attitude is criminal malfeasance, in my opinion, even though I'm not a lawyer, I, I think this is a criminal attack on humanity. Any closing comments before we wrap up today? I'd just like to say thank you to Cheryl because um, the work she's done is is immense and the ground she's covered in the time she, that she's been doing this. And I, I, I hadn't realized the depth of knowledge she had on the industry. And uh, it's very impressive. So thank you so much, uh, Cheryl. And I'll let you sum up, Dr. Lee. Well, Cheryl, I am very grateful to have you on the program in Headley. Why don't you and, and Cheryl come back and do a further presentation on the new data that Cheryl is able to get released under the Freedom of Information Acts and any other information you have in terms of warning the public? Because particularly, I'd be interested in knowing more about some of these products that are in clinical trials what kinds of products are they? I think we should we should do a program exposing what they are developing to push on us next. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry, Sarah, you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them seem to be, um, there's some anti-infectives, but there are some anti-cancer drugs there as well, or anti-cancer injections. And um, I just feel that it seems that the effects are cumulative. So a lot of people have had problems after booster doses. Yes. And that's because we don't know how long the mRNA stays in the body. It's not getting rid of it. So the more you put in, the longer you've got. And somebody said the other day that you've got 30 trillion cells in your body. And we're filling a lot of them with continuous shots um, being taken into our cells. So, um, yeah, it doesn't matter if you've had all your COVID shots and then you start having them for cancer and for other things, then it, it's putting more and more in and that has to be stopped. Uh, yes. And I'm seeing that in my medical practice. The more boosters people are getting, the more medical complications they have. And the D-dimer as a marker of micro blood clotting in the patients I'm monitoring, I'm actually seeing it rising over time. It's not going away. And their spike yeah. protein antibodies are rising. The titers are rising over time. It's not going away. So it's, it's very concerning. Well, let's have, you, let's have you both back and give us an update in, say, a month. And we will um, keep on this to expose what they're doing and what the jeopardy is for the public. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you, listeners, for all of your support of the Whistleblower Report and share it with your network so that we can expose the lies and deception and bring you truth and hope and other solutions to improve your health. In the meantime, check out Truth For Health Foundation store at truthforhealthstore.com for nutraceuticals that are designed to help you improve the health and resilience of your body particularly after all the COVID shots that people have been getting. So check it out and be sure to sign up for our email alerts and our newsletter at truthforhealth.org. And we'll be back again 
with another whistleblower report. Thank you for joining us today.